Brothers and sisters, I want to begin this sermon a little bit differently. If you've missed the last few weeks, this is a sermon series on Mosaic's values, that we're gospel-centered, multicultural, and spirit-led. Now, it's, a, it's important that we remember that, that each of our values are rooted in, nourished by, and propelled by the good news of what God has done for us in Christ and who we are in Christ. Said another way, being united to Christ means that we are gospel-centered, intentionally multicultural, and led by the Spirit. So this is an opportunity for me to go full-fledged Black Baptist preacher and just preach a sermon off of a, off of a single verse, Romans 8:14. For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. And if I'm preaching off of one verse, it really just means I'm going to have to preach the entire Bible in a sermon. It's great. It's fine. But that verse itself, that all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God, is a simple one. But it's deeper than you may have ever thought. And so what does Mosaic mean when it says that it's Spirit-led? Well, the good thing is we wrote, we wrote all this out in our values. And so the full value reads thus. The Holy Spirit, God himself, dwells in our hearts. This incredible reality pushes us to slow down and follow where the Spirit is leading in repentance, discipleship, and service. Now, at the end of our time this morning, I want everyone to remember and believe three things. That the gospel is personal, that the gospel is communal, and that the gospel is cosmic. And so, the work of the Holy Spirit is personal, communal, and cosmic. Once you turn to your neighbor and say personal, communal, cosmic. To be led by the Spirit is to live in union with Christ. Now, both of those statements may sound like Christianese and nebulous, so let's, let's get into the nitty-gritty. And so, and so for us to understand that the solution, the gospel, is personal, communal, and cosmic, you probably need to be convinced that it fits the problem. Well, I'm here to tell you that the problem, our sin, is personal, communal, and cosmic. If you don't believe me, let's turn to Genesis 3, a well-known yet soul-crushing narrative. You, you know the story. Adam and Eve are created and given a command. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent deceives Eve. Adam's chilling on the sidelines and doesn't do anything except eat the fruit. If you look back at the text, it says, it says that Eve turns to her husband who was with her, and God catches them. Genesis 3 is paradise lost. God uttering his curses upon those who have broken covenant with him. But if you look closely at Genesis 3, 14 to 19, you'll notice that there are four entities that are cursed. First, the serpent is cursed. Then the woman is cursed. But then the man is cursed by means of cursing the ground. God says in Genesis 3, 17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. The curse of sin affected Adam and Eve personally. They realized that they were naked and became ashamed. They, they became profoundly stupid and thought that they could hide from an all-seeing God. The, the corruption of sin began to eat away at them. The curse of sin affected Adam and Eve communally. The curse on the woman would affect her and our relationships as well as childbearing. Sin would make living in community with other sinners a very, very difficult thing to do. But also the curse of sin affected the cosmos, the world. 
The very ground from which the man was made was cursed because of his and his wife's deeds. The peace, the, the shalom of, of amoral creation, the, the very fabric of the universe was shattered by the failure of moral human beings. By sinning, Adam and Eve broke the creation mandate to care for the world that God created. And so when you sin, it doesn't, when, when, when you and I sin, it, it doesn't just break us. It, it breaks our relationships, and ultimately, it breaks the world. There's some other biblical examples of the personal, communal, and cosmic effects of sin. If you look at the book of Joshua, the people of Israel are told to commit all of Canaan to the ban. Don't leave any of their stuff. Don't leave any men, women, or children alive. God has judged them as guilty, and thus they are to be destroyed. And so in the midst of this campaign, there's a man named, named Achan, who after the sacking of Jericho, you all know the story of, of, of walking around Jericho and the walls falling down. It, after the sacking of Jericho, he takes a number of prized goods from the city. And, and the next battle that the people of Israel engaged in, they lost badly. Why? Well, God confronted Joshua and told him in Joshua 7, saying, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have, they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Those are terrifying words. That's God saying that he is going to remove his presence from his people because they disobeyed him. And really, it's not a removal of his presence. It's a, it's a, it's a, it, it, it's a shift of his presence. No, no longer will he be a God of comfort on the side of his people. No, Israel will only know Yahweh as a warrior armed for their swift and brutal destruction. Now that, that is horrifying. But those are words that exemplify a communal identity. Achan's sin didn't just reflect and didn't just affect and reflect upon himself. They extended to the entire people of Israel. Israel had become devoted to destruction because of the covenant transgression of one of their number. Your sin ain't just about you. It's personal, communal, and cosmic. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 lied about keeping some of the proceeds of their house sale, and the Holy Spirit struck them dead. And the result, Scripture says, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Sin is personal, communal, and cosmic. Now, if that's the picture of what sin is, then our picture of salvation must be all the more glorious, amen? Because, because after all, the God whom we serve, the God who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, the God who dwells in us by the Holy Spirit, is a God much bigger than any problems that we can create. But his salvation follows along, transcends, and heals along the lines of that which was broken. And so our persons, our personal lives, are broken by sin as they're continually poisoned by sin's corruption. Lust seeps through our minds. Envy blurs our vision and squeezes out our love. Pride puffs us up and narrows our blinders. But each of these things focus our attention away from the creator and toward the creature. Our communities are broken by sin. Both the effects of individual moral failings 
and the reality-shifting and opportunity-closing effects of institutional and structural sin suffuse our communities. Why, why, why do we see a massive racial wealth gap? Why are black women three times more likely to die in childbirth than white women? Why are schools still segregated? Why are hiring discrimination, police brutality, and housing discrimination still significant problems? Well, because sin isn't just about what you as an individual have done. It's also seeped into the communities in which you and I live. When we look at the decay of the world around us, when, when we look at the seemingly unrelenting, forward-pressing forces of government and other big systems that extend beyond just our local communities, when, when, when we see the environmental effects of human overreach, when, when we look around the world and are overwhelmed by the constant and seemingly undefeatable presence of evil, we're reminded that sin is also cosmic. But... The work of the Holy Spirit redeems each of these realities. And if we're to be a spirit-led people, that means that we've got to be on the personal, communal, and cosmic train of divine salvation. And so our value emphasizes the fact that in order to bring that good news, we need supernatural power, and that power is the presence of God himself. The first sentence of our spirit-led value is the climax of God's presence with his people. If you read through the Old Testament, it begins in the garden with God walking with Adam and Eve. There's an, there's an intimacy in the garden, but, but sin shatters that intimacy. And so God reforges it in his, covenant with, in his covenant of grace. You can think of it as God saying, you can't run and you can't hide. I will have my people. And so when God reforges that intimacy, especially in his covenant with Abraham, he, 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 he promises that he will be this people's God and they will be his people. And when God frees the Israelites from Egyptian slavery, they, they, they build a tabernacle with the Ark of the Covenant in which you could find the presence of God moving around with the people as they lived a nomadic life. And then in the time of the monarchy, the people built a temple and the presence of God was in the Holy of Holies untouchable and unseeable except by the high priest and only then once a year but then the temple's destroyed and the people of god are taken into exile and the big and the big existential question is where is god has he abandoned us and we get hints in Jeremiah and Ezekiel that, that a time is coming when god's going to be present with his people in a new way enter the incarnation Enter Jesus, that same God who created the world, walked again with his creation. His disciples eat with God. They laugh with God. They cry with God and they joke with God. And yet even that intimacy was not the goal. How mind-blowing is it that Jesus would say in John 16, 7, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. And who is that helper? That helper? The paraclete, the encourager, the Holy Spirit. Jesus just said that we now are in a better situation than the disciples who walked with Jesus. If we have been united to Christ by faith, you and I, 
then the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And if you have been united to Christ by faith, if you have repented and turned to Christ as the only source of salvation, then that first sentence of our value, that the Holy Spirit dwells within you, that's true of you. And if that first sentence is true, then the second sentence ought to also be true, as each of those practical activities flow from the work of the Spirit in the life of the Christian. So let's take a look at those activities. First, repentance. First point of application, don't trust yourself. And why would I say something like that? Well, I'm the most likely person to give myself the benefit of the doubt. I'm the most likely person to justify my own actions. And the first sign of the work of the Holy Spirit is a repentant heart. It's a heart that recognizes that it's sinful, confesses that sin to the Lord, and seeks to turn from that sin. I would go so far as to say, and this is entirely uncontroversial, that if you have never repented, and if you see no need to repent, you are not a Christian. I don't need to qualify or soften that in any way. Christians repent constantly. Those who know Christ know that they are deeply sinful, and they look to the Lord to burn that sin out of them. Those who know Christ know what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17, 9, that, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And they know that their own hearts fit in that category apart from the Spirit. So how do you put this into practice? Well, look for the times in your life when you are most defensive and ask yourself, what am I trying to protect? My image? Other people's idea of my character, my, my popularity? You will find that none of those things are your identity in Christ. If it's true that Christ's salvation has radically shifted our priorities and, 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 and our views of, of who we are, then there's no place for defensiveness. My, my favorite example of this is considering adherence to racist beliefs. See, because I can have a discussion about whether or not I believe a particular racist idea, but, but I can never say, I would never believe that. I'm not that kind of person. Um, yes, yes, we all are. We are that kind of people. That is, sinful people who will make things up to affirm our own positions of power and influence at the expense of others. That's, that's exactly what sin is, and as sinful people, those are the things that we do. And so you can say that you haven't committed a particular act, but don't think that that makes you a, a, a good person. None of us are good people. It's why we need the work of the Spirit. It's why we must repent. And the difficulty of it, the slowness of it, the excruciating pain of it, is why we desperately need the Spirit to fuel us in the work. When our brothers, sisters, or neighbors rebuke us in our sin, it's not an opportunity to hunker down in our bunkers of self-protection. By the Spirit, it's an opportunity to examine ourselves, to open up to one another, to submit to one another as he shapes us into the image of Christ. And as someone who's personally prone to self-protection, I know it's hard. Shoot, it, it, it's, it's hard to be in an argument with your spouse and to know that you're wrong and to not want to say it. None of us want to put ourselves in that, in that situation. And yet, that is what the Spirit would have us do. Pry our clenched fists off of our egos. That's why we confess individually. That's why we confess corporately in our liturgy. It's, it's why the Westminster Confession says in chapter 15 that men and women ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every person's duty to seek to repent 
of his or her particular sins particularly. Repent of your particular sins particularly. So tonight with your families, practice that kind of work. Lest I was disrespectful slash harsh with my, to, to my wife, more I actively dismissed my wife's thoughts and opinions, treating her as though she's less than the child of God who she is. Lest I was prideful, more I actively diminished the worth of my neighbor by calling him or her that name. That's part of the personal work of the Holy Spirit. The purging of sin and the production of fruit. This is why Paul says in Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And sons of God is important. It's not children of God. And it's not sons and daughters of God. It's sons. Why? Because regardless of your sex or gender, if you are in Christ, if you are led by the Spirit, you are united to the eternal Son of God, and you enjoy all of the benefits of inheritance therein. That, dear brother and dear sister, is good news. And that's the personal work of the Holy Spirit in sanctification. Now, the communal work of the Spirit is the work of discipleship. God, God hasn't just gathered a kind of atomistic group of individuals to himself. He's gathered a people. He's gathered a new nation. And the image of the church as the body of Christ that Paul uses to describe the church is an important one. Every body part is essential, even though they have different purposes. And so that means that when one body part suffers, we all suffer. When one body part rejoices, we all rejoice. When, when parents lose a child to miscarriage, we all mourn. When a member of our community graduates from college, we all ought to rejoice. When a family member loses a job due to COVID, loses, loses a life because of police brutality, loses a friendship, we all mourn. And when, a and, and when a member of our covenant family gets a promotion, we celebrate. Why? Because God didn't just call individuals. He formed a people. And the Holy Spirit is constantly doing the work of breaking down the walls of hostility that we're really, really good at building up. Peter sums this up beautifully. He says this, you, you, you believers, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people, a body, a covenant community. So then, discipleship is a core activity of the church. A commitment to hold one another to the responsibilities of being members of the body of Christ. It means that we're honest about our sin, not only with God, but with one another. It means, that we're, it means that we're active peacemakers. It means that we submit to the discipline of the church. It means that we cannot and ought not hide from one another. Great historical example. Back, back, in, the, back in the 16th century, 
in Geneva, Switzerland, John Calvin set up an institution called the Consistory. It was made up of all the elders of the church, and they, and they would visit the households of church members, checking up not only on their personal lives, but also on their domestic lives. And, 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 when, you look at the, and when you look at the records, you, you'll find that, that many of the issues that people were brought up for discipline on were domestic issues, because those were often the easiest sins to hide. May that not be the case in the church. Desiree always makes, uh, makes fun of me because pre-COVID, you know, when we went to each other's ho- houses for dinner, um, I, would, I would wait until about halfway through the conversation with, w- or with one of our couple friends, and then I would regularly ask, so, so how's your marriage? <laughs> Desiree, Desiree would always tell me, well, isn't that, isn't that a little bit personal? To which I would respond, no, like that's, it's, it's just personal enough. Culturally, we put, we put privacy at a premium. Stay out of my business. It's, 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 it's my business. But if we're actually invested in seeing the unity that the Spirit would have us ex- experience, in seeing, in seeing the Spirit do the work of conforming each of us to the image of Christ, if we, if we really want to be led by the Spirit, then I'm going to have to be up in your life, and you should be up in mine. And that's, that's, a, that's, a, scary, that's a scary reality, sure. But this ought to be a safe space for that to happen. And I understand that perhaps for some of you, the, the, the church has not been that kind of space. And I lament that. It may be the case that the church has been primarily a place of judgment. That's the way that you've experienced it. But here, now, is an opportunity for us to truly be the kind of community that the Spirit works through in discipleship and repentance. That's the slow work of discipleship. That's the work that we have to dig deeply into because if we're not discipling one another, Fox News, MSNBC, or CNN, wh- whatever, they will gladly fill in the gaps. And so we must be about the slow communal work of the Spirit. It's a long fight that we're in together. The long work of showing one another grace, of holding one another accountable, of helping one another live lives worthy of the calling to which we have been called. If you know someone who has an addiction, you know this to be true. Whether they're addicted to alcohol, to cocaine, to anger, pornography, maybe Twitter and Facebook as an, as an addiction, you know that the fight takes time and it takes support. But by the Spirit, we remind one another that we're not alone. Yes, COVID-19 has separated us physically. Yes, we are bodies and our physical realities matter. But unity and community are not just physical realities. And so, dear brother and dear sister, I I want you to know that you are not alone. The work of the Spirit is communal. But the work of the Spirit is also cosmic. One of my favorite theologians says it this way. The gospel is a joyful tiding, not only for the individual person, but also for humanity, for the family, for society, for the state, for art for art, for science, for the whole cosmos, for the whole groaning creation. The fact that Christ was born, lived a perfect life, died for your sins, was raised, and is coming back is good news for the individual, for humanity, for the family, for science, for art, all of those things. God cares about everything in creation that was affected by Genesis 3, and he intends to restore and redeem all that has been corrupted. It's all part of God's cosmic kingdom. So what does that that mean? 
It means that how we treat the immigrant and the poor matters to God. It, it means that sex trafficking matters to God. It means that the unborn matter to God. It means that our brothers and sisters and neighbors in the LGBTQ community matter deeply to God. It means that music matters to God. It means that gun violence matters to God. It means that our country's racial and ethnic caste system matters to God. It means that divorce, child abuse, genocide, drug epidemics, all of these things matter to the ruler of the universe. And, and if they matter to him, they must matter to those who have been tasked from their creation, us, to, to exercise dominion or careful and wise stewardship over the earth. And that dominion manifests itself not only in seeking the spiritual salvation of our neighbor, but also in the current liberation of our neighbor, because we deeply believe that Christ wants his people to be truly free. Issues of justice for the Christian, are issues of liberating the creation from the works of the devil. John says this in 1 John 3, that the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Yes, Jesus did a whole bunch of things in his, in his incarnation, during his life, and by his death and resurrection. But how does John summarize it? Jesus came to beat the tar out of the devil. Jesus came to free his people from bondage. And as Christians, we are ambassadors of that freedom. It's a holistic freedom. It's a, it's a freedom that sees our neighbors as souls and bodies in need of spiritual, mental, and physical liberation. And if we're united to the Son of God, we have got to be on board with the work of the Son of God and the cosmic work of the Holy Spirit. And so why do I call that service in our value? Well, go back to Genesis. Go back to Genesis. What, what, what's the task of humanity? It's, it's to cultivate the ground and to cultivate creation. And that mandate doesn't go away. The task is the same. And so, and so by the Spirit, we need to spend time in our local communities, leveraging their strengths and pouring the grace of God into their weaknesses as we would in any community. It means that when we consider our public, social, and political action, it means that we do so from a standpoint of, seeing, of seeking to cultivate the ground and to make it fruitful for all those who work it. It means that when we see our neighbor, we see an image bearer to serve rather than a tool to be used. And so, and so Spirit-led could let some people think that we don't have a firm foundation. Maybe we, like the Spirit, just blow wherever we will. Well, it's my hope that you now know what, what we mean when we say that we seek to be a spirit-led people. God, God, by his spirit, has given us his word, and we've also got some other sources that are helpful to hash out some of these specifics. Our confessional tradition is one of those things. And so what does it mean to be led by the spirit? It means to go where the spirit goes and to do what the spirit says. And what will the spirit continually do? The Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, will always point you to the Son of God. And thus, what must we do? Run to him. Repent. Believe the gospel. Place your trust in the only wise God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. See his life, death, and resurrection, and know that they were for you. And not just you, but for a people and for a world. And when we go to Christ... He fuels us and pushes us out to live lives of repentance, discipleship, and service. That's what a spirit-led, gospel-infused life looks like.
That's what it means to be a son of God. Let's pray.